What I really like about prayer and self-denial is it's a great reminder that God is always at work. God's at work in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our country, and obviously around the world. And I think what's also helpful about prayer and self-denial is that it points out that, that we've got a part to play in God's mission. Right? We've got something to do, that's, whether that's locally here in Alexandra or Central Otago or um, globally around the world. So for the next three weeks, we're going to highlight some of the work that some of our supported missionaries do. Uh, but we're also going to dive into this ancient story of Esther. Now, some of you might be familiar with this story. Some of you might have never heard it before. But the story of Esther is uh, found in the Bible, in one of the historical books uh, in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And I don't know about you, but I think if, if, if Esther's story was written down now as a novel, it would be a bestseller. It's got action, it's got drama, it's got power, it's got romance, conspiracy, redemption, all the sort of stuff that would make a, a blockbuster movie or a really great stage show. But the fascinating thing is that Esther is not a work of fiction. It is a true life account of God at work in the past, how he lined up circumstances and situations, but also in how he invited people to respond to him back then. And the cool thing is that God is still at work today, and he invites us to respond to him. So before we have a glimpse of what God is still doing uh, and what he has done, we need to have a look uh, at the past. So we're going to roll back around 2,500 years ago to when the known world was under the rule of the Persian Empire. Okay, here's a map of the Persian Empire. Not sure how familiar you are with ancient history, but the Persian Empire was massive. So it covered an area of 5.5 million square kilometers. That's, that's larger than the area of all the countries that make up the European Union at the moment. Okay, it's a pretty big space. If, if we were to put the Persian Empire in now, it would take up countries like Libya, Egypt, northern Sudan. It would take up western Greece and Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq. It would take up Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, a bunch of other stans. Um, no, maybe not. Or Pakistan, it would take up Pakistan. Uh, it would also take up northwest India. It was huge, okay? And not, not only was it vast geographically, it also had a lot of people. It's estimated that there was around 50 million people under the, the um, rule of the Persian Empire at its peak. Okay, 50 million people. So Esther, where she fits into the story, she was the wife of King Xerxes I. Right, I think we need to kind of do some pronunciation. Xerxes, say after me, Xerxes. All right, good. You're feeling smarter already, right? Like, whoa, Xerxes. I thought it was Xerxes, but it's not. It's Xerxes. Okay. Now, he's most famous for, he's most famous for a failure. So he uh, attempted to invade Greece in the year 480 BC, uh, and he took around about 300,000 troops. That's more than Hamilton and Dunedin's population combined. So you imagine feeding those guys? 300,000 troops. He took over 1,200 ships, and he landed on the shores of Greece, and he was unable to conquer it. And that was a real dent to his pride, and so that reduced the Persian influence across the Mediterranean. So that was his famous failure. And when you have a famous failure like that, what do you do? Go and build some buildings. 
So he was also famous for undertaking massive construction projects, uh, particularly this is uh, an artist's impression of his palace in the city of Susa, which is um, in modern-day Iran. And um, this is actually where most of the action of Esther's story takes place. So Xerxes was a pretty busy guy, right? He was either waging war, or he was big building projects, or he was partying. Now, when you're busy waging war, building projects, or partying, you probably don't really have time to run an empire. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's sort of how I feel. So he had a group of nobles who were responsible for administering the empire, and this is where we're going to pick up the story, Esther chapter 3, starting at verse 1. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to um, follow along. Otherwise, I'll put it up on the screen. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamigadatha, the Agites, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. Right, next pronunciation lesson. Haman. Okay, you're not so convinced on that one. Would you rather me get you to pronounce his dad's name? No, okay. Whew, that's good, because I'm not 100% sure about that either. Okay, Haman. Okay, Haman was basically the prime minister. Okay, He was second in charge of the empire. He was answerable really only to the king, and he had this position, was a position of huge power and privilege. Okay, Haman. Esther chapter 3, verse 2. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. So a little bit of extra information here. Mordecai was a palace official, and he was a Jew. And there's some backstory that you need to know. So Haman's ethnicity, you might have noticed in the first, uh, first verse, Haman's ethnicity was he was an Agagite. And centuries earlier, his ancestors had attacked the Jewish people when they were escaping from Egypt. And so there had been animosity and enmity between the true groups ever since. And that's, that's likely the reason that Mordecai refused to bow down and respect Haman. Mordecai sensed that Haman was no different to his ancestors, that he had evil intentions. And so we're going to find out how true this is. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. I think it's fascinating to appreciate that the Nazi Holocaust during World War II was not the first attempt to wipe out the Jewish people. In fact, you'll see there, Haman wanted to destroy all the Jews in the empire simply because one guy, one guy would not bow down and show him respect. Now, I don't know what you think about that. Like, is that a bit, is that a bit OTT? Is that just a little bit over the top? of Haman. I think it gives us a glimpse of his self-centeredness. He is going to expend all this time and energy and effort to validate his self-importance. And what Haman does next really confirms 
his arrogance. So he convinces the king to issue a decree, a decree that every Jewish person, man, woman, children, young and old, could be attacked and killed and their property confiscated on a certain day in 11 months' time. So this is literally a death warrant for millions of people. It's estimated that there was around 10 million Jews in the Persian Empire. Out of 50 million, that's 20%. That's a huge chunk of the population potentially wiped out because of the pride and the hatred of one man. And so when Mordecai, the palace official who won't bow down, when he hears of this decree, he is, he's gutted. He knows that this is going to bring destruction for all the Jewish people, including Esther, the queen, who is Mordecai's cousin. So he sends a message to Esther. He says, she has to do something. Just because she is queen, she's not going to escape this decree. Mordecai asks Esther to speak up, to use her God-given position to tell the king about this injustice against the Jewish people. And there's this famous line that Mordecai shares with Esther. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. So Esther decides to fast and pray, and Mordecai organizes the Jews in the city to do the same. And then after three days of fasting and praying, Esther arranges a banquet, and she invites the king and Haman. And this is what happens next. When he, Haman, saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and went on home. Then Haman gathered together his friends and his wife and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. Then Haman added, that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. Then he added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. Let's just pause for a moment and do like a little character analysis on Haman, okay? Because he was filled with rage in chapter 3, and here in chapter 5, he is furious. He's an angry man. He's angry that Mordecai will not show him the respect that he thinks he deserves. Now, I find this fascinating because... It seems like Haman's got it all. I and mean, here he is, he boasts to his friends about his wealth, about his children. He brags about how he's been honored by the king and promoted over all the other officials. And then he talks about this personal invitation that he, he has been given by the king and the queen. Have you ever noticed that self-centered people really have one topic of conversation? themselves, right? But it seems like for Haman, that's not enough. His self-indulgence is not satisfied despite his wealth, despite his power, despite his prestige. He is enraged when things don't go his way. And over the years, I have met a handful of people like Haman. Despite their boasting, despite their bragging, they're really small people. They have a small mind, 
a small picture, and they get upset over small things. And the crazy thing is that Haman is not, he's not upset about things that truly matter in the world. He's not upset about injustice or corruption or oppression. He's not, he's not worried about the circumstances and the situations of other people. He is upset because his pride has been bruised. Haman has made himself an idol. His focus is inward. He is self-seeking, self-centered, self-absorbed. He is, he is his own loudest cheerleader. He blows his own trumpet. He sings his own praises. But the sad thing is Haman is not alone. Like since the beginning of human history, people have set themselves up as their own idols. And I think, I think our Western society is really geared towards this. So you think about the advertising that we get bombarded with, right? The marketing that gets presented to us on a regular basis, it centers, about, centers on self-promotion, about satisfying our own interests and our own desires. And that's really common in those sort of glamour brands. Right, look at this tagline from L'Oreal Paris. Because you're worth it. This is what a professor wrote about L'Oreal Paris's tagline. I'm going to read to you. It's pretty harsh, but this is what he says. He says, L'Oreal's slogan, because you're worth it, has come to epitomize the banal narcissism of early 21st century capitalism, easy indulgence, and effortless self-love, all available with the flick of a credit card. Wow. You lay that down, Jeff Mulgain. It's not just glamour brands, it's actually junk food. It's a very kind of like self-centered thing. Okay, Burger King, have it your way. Red Bull gives you wings. And Coca-Cola. Now, Coca-Cola has just made millions of dollars in the last probably two or three years with their latest advertising promotion, Share a Coke with... And instead of printing Coca-Cola on the bottles, they have people's first names, right? And I don't know whether you drink Coca-Cola or not, but if you do, you go to the shelf, you go to the fridge, you go to buy one of these personalized Coca-Cola bottles, and which bottle do you grab? You grab the one with your name on it. You start looking for the one with your name. You don't want to like anybody else's name. You look, well, yeah, I found it. And people take pictures, share a Coke with Craig, but it's Craig holding the bottle. I don't know. I don't drink it anymore. <clears throat> Much. <laughs> the thing about advertising is it really elevates and celebrates self. It's about fulfilling what we want, when we want, and how we want it. And Haman is a really extreme example of this principle. Like few people in the world, few people throughout history have ever had the privileged and powerful position that he held. Few people are also as narcissistic as he was. And I know that we will highly unlikely ever have a position uh, of power and privilege that, that he held. And so what we tend to do is we, we look at the story and we, we say, it's a cautionary tale. This is what happens when someone becomes so self-absorbed with their own pride and their own power. And then what happens is we start to look around. And we look at our family, our friends, our workmates, our neighbors, people in church, and we go, well, they have some issues. They're kind of like Haman. But it's very uncommon to look at ourselves. It's very 
uncommon to ask the question, how much of Haman is in me? Do I need to be appreciated by others? Do I get upset when things do not go my way? Do I feel threatened when my pride is challenged? Now, we're not at the same level of Haman, okay? All of us do have selfish tendencies. We, we do kind of sometimes want to make ourselves the center of the universe. But please, please hear me. I'm not saying that you as a person are not important, okay? You are very important. The Bible says that every person that has ever lived has been created in the image of God. That means that you have inherent value and worth. God has invested purpose and potential in you. You are, you are a special person to God, but you are not the center of the universe. And I think if scientists ever discover the center of the universe, it's going to be a lot of disappointed people to find that they are not it. But Haman had fallen into that thinking. He falsely believed that life revolved around him. So to make his point, he sets up this massive pole, 75 feet high in the, in the air, 23 meters if you want to figure it out in a different way. And the, Haman has the plans for this pole. He's going to get Mordecai impaled on it at the top to make a very obvious point as a warning to not disrespect Haman. But there's this huge twist in the story. In chapter 6, King Xerxes is having a sleepless night. Maybe he's worried about failing wars, the building project's not going well, too much partying, whatever it is, but he is having a sleepless night, and so he asks for the historical records to be read aloud to him. And he discovers that five years earlier, Mordecai had uncovered a plot to assassinate Xerxes, and unfortunately, Mordecai had not been acknowledged for saving the king's life. So the king commands Haman, his, his prime minister, to honor Mordecai. And the irony is that only hours earlier, Mordecai has been setting up this pole to impale Mordecai on the top. But instead, Haman has to parade Mordecai throughout the city streets. Mordecai is dressed in the king's robes, he's riding the king's horse, and Haman has to proclaim that Mordecai is honored by the king. This is like the ultimate slap in the face, isn't it? This is a total role reversal for what Haman was expecting. Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. That's not how he expected his day would go. But that was only in the morning. His day goes from bad to worse. He rushes home, uh, gets himself sorted, then goes to this banquet with the queen and the king, and this is when Esther makes her move. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. While they're drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther, what is your request? I'll give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded. Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright, 
before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman's had a pretty rough morning, okay? He is having a terrible afternoon. His selfishness has been revealed, his evil plans have been exposed, and now the king is really, really mad. And he is not the type of guy that you want to see really, really mad. And so eventually there's this humongous ironic twist in the story. Haman gets impaled on the pole that he had intended for Mordecai. Do you think Haman got the point? <laughs> oh, wasn't sure how that was going to go. I was like, oh, how can I make a gruesome, torturous death really funny? I'll just, you know. Anyway, as a classic, classic impalement joke. I mean, if you ever need to use it, feel free. But after Haman got executed on the pole, Mordecai is rewarded by the king. He gets given this position of privilege and power. Look what happens. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great amongst the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. Mordecai ensured that the Jewish people were protected across the empire. So instead of being destroyed, they were delivered from their enemies. And that deliverance uh, ultimately ended up um, seeing the establishment of a festival, a Jewish festival called the Festival of Purim. And it's been celebrated by Jewish communities around the world for the last two and a half thousand years. So we just missed it. It was at the end of February this year. Uh, and there was huge crowds, not around just in Israel, but right around the world. They have street parties, they have parades, they have concerts. Uh, here's, here's a glimpse of part of a parade in Israel. You can see the armed soldiers. So obviously that only happens in certain places. It's just a really joyous time. Kids dress up, adults dress up. Um, it's supposed to be pretty fun, but one person in this photo didn't get the memo about enjoying it. It's just a real celebration. But here's the fascinating thing. For centuries, the Jewish people have not lost the focus that Mordecai asked them to establish for this festival. Mordecai told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. And so during the festival of Purim, there's a real emphasis on sharing with others and donating to charity. So during the festival, every Jewish person has to give either money or food to at least two people who are less fortunate than them, and they also have to donate some money to a charity. And so there's this real focus on others during this festival. It's a huge contrast to the self-centeredness of Haman. Purim is about celebrating community. It's about generously sharing money and food and resources for the good of the wider community. And I don't know about you, but I see real parallels between that ancient Jewish festival and what happened in the early Christian church. Let me read to you this text from Acts chapter 2. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day. 
met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that hugely inspiring, but also really challenging. I believe the Christian church should be the most generous group of people on the planet. If we're truly going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then we're called to live and to love like him. This is how one of the first Christians put it. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Jesus generously pours out his grace to us. I mean, even though he literally, he literally could claim to be the center of the universe, Jesus gave up that privilege. He suffered and died and rose again so that we could know him, so that we could experience his generous grace in our lives, so we could give that grace to others. But do you know what holds us back from sharing God's grace? We do. And I think if we're honest, our self-centeredness is a real distraction. Like none of us are as proud and arrogant as Haman. Like we don't, we don't go out and kill the people that disrespect us. We don't want to wipe out a whole ethnic group. But it doesn't mean that we're not self-absorbed sometimes. Sometimes we focus on money or the accumulation of wealth. Sometimes we look at personal achievements or positions in our career, our education, sports. Sometimes we prioritize just getting the latest and greatest stuff. And, and none of that is necessarily wrong, but God doesn't call us to accumulate and acquire for our own sake. He calls us to invest our lives for others. This is what Jesus said about it. He said, give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. And generosity really is a value we try to live by here at ABC. And I, I just very simply want to acknowledge your generosity over the years. Like many of you have spent time and effort and energy and enthusiasm and finances investing into this church so that we can experience the goodness of God here and so that we can give that grace to others. And I genuinely want to say thank you. It was really, really appreciated. Because collectively and individually, when we do that, we see God at work. We can look to the needs of others rather than our own. And so that prayer, uh, sorry, that description of Mordecai in that last chapter, I really pray would be true for us. Let me highlight it for you again. Mordecai continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. God calls us to continue to work for the good of people and to speak for the welfare of others. So I'm just going to invite you to pause for a minute and think about one of two things. First one is this. Can you think of someone that you could specifically help this week? Maybe it's some food, maybe it's a bit of money, maybe it's some time, whatever it is, where you can generously show and share God's grace. One person. And if you can't think of anyone, then perhaps you could pray that God would create an opportunity for you this week, that you would be open, that you would have a chance to work for the good of someone else. 
So I'm going to give you 30 seconds to have a quick think about that. Obviously, we're still living with the ongoing effects of the global pandemic, and, and COVID-19 has really meant a lot of changes for many of the missionaries that we support. Some of them have returned to New Zealand, others have been able to stay overseas, but wherever those missionaries are, they have a sense that God had, has placed them and prepared them for such a time as this. So I'd like to invite Jeff Heward. Uh, Jeff's part of our overseas missions team, and he's going to bring us an update on a family currently serving overseas. Kia ora kata. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff, as has been said, and um, I'm part of the missions group, and, uh, uh, which is led by Laurie Davies, who's done a lot of research. And um, for such a time as this, it's been good to talk about this morning about how um, God worked at the time of Esther and moved things. And so we want to talk about what's happening now, and we've got missionaries all around the world. And, uh, and so we've invited our missionaries to um, give us some information <coughs> across th three areas. One is to bring a brief biography of what they, who they are, uh, talk about the day in their life of what's going on, because it, it can be quite, um, for us sitting here in our wealth and security of New Zealand, it can be um, difficult to understand what the, the life of a real missionary is out there overseas, and, and how they sense God has empowered them for such a time as this. So I'm going to talk this morning about um, the Burks. It's Grant and uh, Joanna Burke, and they are ministering in Nigeria. And so they've sent us a, a, a detailed uh, response to our request. So we are Grant and Joanna, plus our four kids, Caitlin, Hayden, Joshua, Emily, serving through uh, SIM in Nigeria. We arrived in Nigeria in 2008, initially involved with theological education, teaching at two different Bible schools in the north over our first five years. Currently, we are involved in missionary support roles, working to provide support structures for over 100 missionaries so that they can thrive in their ministries as well as coordinating the short-term programme. Then they provide us some details of a day in their life. A typical day, and it's a pretty full day, I think you'll acknowledge, a typical day consists of a range of activities. Today, I, this is Grant, was involved with communication with short-termers, planning to come for the summer, that's June and July. Some project management of some renovation work for missionary accommodation a discussion on immigration options with our Nigerian staff member who oversees immigration processes, had discussions and planning sessions with several short-term missionaries on topics related to their ministries, language learning and other issues, and a discussion with our projects coordinator on several SIM projects in the country. Joe was busy coordinating housing options for people alongside running the SIM Ministry Centre that is currently hosting a group working on oral Bible translation. 
She also went shopping for shoes. The kids went to school at 8 a.m., came home at 3.30 p.m., did homework, and played with friends. It's a bit like what we do here. Now we are trying to get them to go to bed. It's also a bit like what we, happens in our families. Then um, we, we asked them, how you sense the Father has empowered you for such a time as this? And their response has been, we have sensed God's strength and enabling, really in just giving us the energy to go three years without a break in a high-stress environment and to deal with a multitude of crises, including security, medical, and of course, COVID. We are grateful for the wisdom he has given us as he guides and directs us. We are also very aware of the people who, of the people behind us, family, friends, supporters, and that's us here, who give financially and pray for us. It is this that has encouraged us over the last three years. We are grateful that we are able to get our first COVID vaccine shot recently and hope to get the second end of June. This was an unexpected gift from God as we hadn't anticipated this being available to us until the end of the year. Pray the second dose will actually be available in June. So, they're wanting us to pray, and so I'm asking you to bow your heads and I will pray now. Loving Heavenly Father, we just really thank you that um, you are a God who is not just an historical concept, but you are working today in, in our lives and around the world. And Lord, we just thank you for the story of Esther and that the comment that Mordecai made for such a time as this, saying to Queen Esther, God is working through you. Lord, we thank you that that is relevant for today, for us and for the Burks overseas. And so, Lord, we think of the great list of things that um, Grant outlined that were part of his day. And, Lord, it's complex and all-encompassing. And so, Lord, we pray that you will give him the strength and the understanding to uh, perform all these tasks that you will bless his wife Jo as she uh, does missionary work as well and um, probably takes the brunt of managing the family. We just really pray that you'll really bless them. We just think of the COVID situation at this time. We just thank you that they've been able to have their initial shots and that this will continue. And, that, and Lord, we really pray that you'll protect them from this disease. We just also remember that it is Nigeria, Africa, and there are all sorts of um, terrorist groups operating there. And Lord, we just really pray that you will have your hand over these uh, missionaries, these um, servants of yours, that you'll give them your protection. But Lord, that most of all, they will look to you every moment of, of the time they're there and that they will always feel your comfort and your strength, empowering them and guiding them and protecting them. So, Lord, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Hopefully you would have recognised that the Burks are where they are for a reason. 
and you would have heard in Jeff's update that they've been there for three years without a break, which is a pretty long time, but yet they've been sustained and strengthened by God's generous grace so they can give that to others. I guess my question is, would we do the same? You know, would we generously give out the grace that God has given us? So friends, I just want to remind you that we are not to be like Haman, but to resist the call of our society to be self-centered and self-absorbed, and instead, may we be like Mordecai. Maybe we... May we be known for the work that we do, for the good of people, and may we speak up for the welfare of others so we can bless others with the generous grace of God. How about we pray together? God, we are grateful uh, for your grace that you've given us and that anyone, anywhere, anytime can know you through your son, Jesus. We just, uh, as Jeff has already shared, we pray for our missionaries overseas they would get an extra boost, they'd know of your goodness and grace at this tough time. And also for us too, here at our local mission field, Alexandra and beyond, we just pray that we would be generous and good, and that we would bless others with the goodness that you have poured out for us. Amen.